Stories of Communism 29, Empty Shelves and Full Pantries. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Today we'll be discussing Sergei Grotishkin's lighthearted but terrifying memoir, Everything is Normal, The Life and Times of a Soviet Kid. It describes his life growing up as a middle-class child in Leningrad in the 1970s and 80s, in the final decades of the Soviet Union's existence. As you'll see, his world can seem quite alien to those of us who grew up in the West during the same time period, with many of the daily comforts we take for granted having been beyond young Sergei's imagination. To start with, Grachishkin talks about the apartments that Leningrad residents were forced to live in. There was a major housing shortage in nearly every Soviet city, so hopeful residents could be on waiting lists for decades to get into a communal apartment, or communokala, meanwhile living with their parents well into adulthood. And what were these communal apartments? These were very large, once opulent residences that the Soviet government had confiscated from their wealthy former owners after the 1917 revolution, then divided between multiple families. The bigger the apartment, the more people were crammed into it, usually one household per room. In January 1971, one such communal flat became my first home. Grandma, Mom, and little brand new me were pretty well off. We had two connecting rooms to ourselves. Our communicala was not very big. Besides us, there were only seven other families in it, about 20 people altogether. Still, that meant 20 people squeezing past each other through the narrow hallways, arguing over who got to use the phone next, jostling each other in the kitchen over multiple stoves with pots on permanent boil, and fidgeting in line for the single, continuously used toilet. After his parents divorced when he was two, Grotishkin's grandmother decided to take him and raise him herself. They exchanged apartments with someone in Peterhof, a suburb about a half-hour's train ride from the Leningrad center. This further complicated the family situation, since his mother had to live close to work, so unofficially moved in with her new boyfriend, Talia, in the city. Officially, Mom lived with Grandma and myself at the Peterhof apartment, meaning she was registered as a resident at that address. To make sure places like Moscow and Leningrad didn't get overrun by folks from the countryside, the police were empowered to stop anyone at any time and anywhere and demand to see their address registration papers. If the papers weren't in perfect order, the person could be ordered to leave town or even thrown in jail. Of course, at such a young age, Sergei wasn't aware of anything missing in his life, but he shares an anecdote that shows the level of economic challenge they were actually facing. One day when I was four years old, Grandma and I were returning from Leningrad to Peterhof with a distant relative of ours. She'd married a man from Sudan and now mostly lived abroad. She got me an awesome present, a piece of chewing gum. Had I been given such a thing several years later, I would have squirreled it away to share with my friends on some meaningful occasion, or to trade it to a schoolmate for some other valuable object, perhaps a toy soldier. But I was still naive in the ways of the world, so I opened it immediately. Inside the outer wrapper was an inner one, with a picture of some western animated character on it. The rarity and value of this souvenir were entirely lost on me. I popped the pink gum into my mouth and began chewing with gusto. It was my first piece of gum ever, and it tasted like nothing I'd ever had before. A mixture of strawberry, banana, and vanilla. Most of my memories of that time coalesce into a sense of timeless boredom. But after my first taste of bubblegum, something new began to mix in with my malaise. Jealousy of the kids in faraway countries who could chew such gum every day. Eventually, Grachishkin's mother married her new boyfriend and had a second child, and she and his grandmother decided to merge their households, exchanging their and Talia's communal apartments for one larger one. 
It seems like an odd decision after spending several years apart. It was probably better to be crowded in with relatives than with strangers. This was actually common at the time. Because of a chronic real estate shortage, marriage in the USSR often meant the merging of old households rather than the formation of a new one. Everyone would move in together, the happy couple, their parents, their grandparents, their siblings, children from previous marriages, and so on. This merger of family residences after marriage is called a zezd, which translates handily as Congress, same as what the Communist Party did every five years. By Soviet standards, ours was rather large, with three rooms and a kitchen. I say rooms rather than bedrooms because the idea of a dedicated living room where no one slept at night was absurd. Our living room doubled as the master bedroom. The memoir goes on to share numerous anecdotes and ironies about Krzyzewski's school years. One of the most surprising comes when he describes how the Soviet government decided to clean up Leningrad for the 1980 Olympics. In preparation for the Olympics, the authorities decided to clean up Moscow and Leningrad, both literally and metaphorically. Many known dissidents, troublesome artists, and other unreliable types were temporarily deported beyond the 101st kilometer, that is, forbidden to enter within 100 kilometers of Moscow or Leningrad. Black market dealers, prostitutes, and habitual drunkards prone to public misbehavior were also rounded up, neither locked away or kicked out of town. To my utter shock, they did the same to all the children. About six months before the opening ceremony, Ekaterina Alexandrova, like all homeroom teachers in Moscow and Leningrad, held a special PTA meeting. She'd received instructions from above that no children would be allowed in either Moscow or Leningrad for the duration of the games. All parents had to notify the authorities within two weeks as to where their children would be staying. Luckily, his grandmother was fairly well off by Soviet standards and was able to take Trichishkin on an extended vacation to Estonia, while his mother, brother, and Talia left to stay with Talia's parents for a few weeks. His grandmother took him to watch the boat races, but young Trichishkin's attention was grabbed by another strange novelty. While the adults peered through binoculars and cheered, I sat in anticipation of something truly thrilling, the souvenir shops. There was an abundance of posters, key fobs, t-shirts, and they weren't just for foreigners. Regular Soviet citizens could buy them, too. My materialistic soul was in paradise. I got a blue t-shirt and a cap with Olympics 80 on it, and a mega-cool keychain with the Olympic bear. All in all, I spent over five rubles of my birthday present money. Grandma approved of my purchases. In fact, she rather approved too much. The keychain, she said, was far too nice to use every day, and if I were to take it to school, someone was sure to steal it from me. It would be best, she said, to keep it in a special drawer in her room with other valuable toys that I was allowed to play with only on special occasions. If that wasn't enough, he was also introduced to the wonders of foreign soft drinks and all that accompanied them. Pepsi was something else entirely. The soft drink brought with it another innovation to the USSR, kiosks that served cola in disposable plastic cups. This was a pleasant surprise for two reasons. For one, kvass was served in actual glass mugs and only got a brief rinse between customers. Grandma would often tell me, you should never drink from those communal glasses. Who knows what sort of germs are on them? Now we got a free gift with our soda purchase. Who would throw away a perfectly reusable plastic cup? Not any Soviet person, that's for sure. Those cups still had long and productive lives ahead of them as drinking vessels, ashtrays, seating pots, containers for bolts and nails, etc. The excitement of this type of shopping contrasted with the dreary burden of obtaining groceries as part of day-to-day -day life in the cities. When something interesting like oranges or bananas appeared in the market, people would line up for hours just to have a chance of buying a few. On most days, access to such items was unimaginable. 
Scarcity accompanied every Soviet citizen every step of the way from the cradle to the grave. The key word for Soviet shoppers was deficit. If an item was in deficit, that meant it almost never appeared for sale in stores. So many food items were deficit that it's easier to say what wasn't. Potatoes, bread, pasta, salt, and canned fish. Those were the only items you could always count on finding in the stores. Paradoxically, empty stores often meant full pantries. Since no one ever knew when any particular item might appear in stores, everything even remotely useful was bought on site, regardless of whether it was actually needed. This went for food as well, making constant shortages a self-fulfilling prophecy. In our house, the cupboards were always bursting with various flowers, grains, and legumes. Unfortunately, there weren't enough well-sealed containers to hold them all. Every few years, Mama and Grandma would inspect their food supply and invariably have to throw out most of it because it was infested with little multi-legged black vermin known under the generic term juki, or bugs. Then they'd buy more fresh flour and grains. It was a vicious cycle without end. Insects infested every nook and cranny of Soviet life. If someone said about some kid, his parents are rich, we wouldn't know what to make of it. If they had said his mom is a director of a gastronom market, that would have meant something. The kid probably ate ham and bananas every day, like the big shots in the Kremlin. The lack of goods extended well beyond food, of course. Our parents didn't have the slightest clue about modern conveniences like trash bags, wet wipes, paper handkerchiefs, disposable diapers, shaving gel, and tampons, or any other types of female sanitary products. Until the mid-1970s, there wasn't even such a thing as deodorant. A typical Soviet apartment of those days looked like it belonged to hoarders. Nothing was ever thrown out, not even things that were hopelessly broken. After all, a broken thing might still get fixed someday, or at least used for scrap parts. So families stockpiled rubbish, worn-out shoes, parts of broken furniture, punctured bicycle tires, etc., and their already cramped apartments filling cluttered balconies, basements, and sometimes entire rooms with items left to gather dust and await the day, usually in vain, when they would be fixed or repurposed. Because laws of supply and demand did not apply and shortages were permanent, the only way to procure many items was through blot. Blot meant knowing a guy or knowing a guy who knew a guy. If you could get people a sheepskin coat or a regular supply of good cuts of meat, then you'd be able to leverage those favors for other favors. Quality medical care, a spot at a Black Sea resort, university placement for an underachieving child, or even the papers necessary to avoid a military draft. As the years went on, Grichishkin was encouraged to join the young pioneers, often thought of as a Soviet answer to the Boy Scouts. There were a few differences, though. Unlike the American Boy Scouts, who overflow with sincere old glory patriotism, the young pioneers understood that they were part of a sham. Everyone knew our drums and red flags were just pageantry for the sake of pageantry. We marched because we were instructed to do so by the teachers, not because we were genuinely excited by the advent of communism. And the teachers made sure we did it not because they wanted to mold us into good communists, but because they didn't want to visit from the city district officials. We also joined another group, the International Friendship Club, which came with some amazing benefits due to their role in hosting visiting delegations from foreign leftist groups. The small trinkets the foreigners would give him, like pencils with cartoon characters or scented erasers, were mysterious treasures to the Soviet students. Gifts were the most valuable aspect of heading the International Friendship Club. My childhood aspirations were mostly material. There was practically no end to my material desires, stifled as they were by Soviet austerity. I didn't nurture hopes of my parents getting back together like other children of divorce. I yearned not for academic honors or sports trophies. I didn't dream of becoming a cosmonaut. 
I had no hope of any abstract freedoms, like being able to read whatever book I wanted in peace without the KGB breathing down my neck. I just wanted lots and lots of foreign pencils and erasers and stickers. I wanted our family to have a car. I also wanted my own room and a color TV and, of course, lots and lots of toy soldiers. Not the flat plastic ones, but the awesome 3D ones. And sweets, oh my god. Cake, chocolate, Pepsi, some of that Donald chewing gum. And bananas. I would have killed for bananas. Grichishkin continues describing his school years and his gradually growing awareness of the pervasive propaganda constantly surrounding him. By listening to Voice of America and similar sources, he started to realize the dramatic differences between his lifestyle and that of the prosperous West. Further, crazy-sounding anecdotes focus on other issues like the state of Soviet medical care, attitudes towards sex and dating, and the prevalence of workplace theft as a tool to supplement the pitiful salaries paid by the government. In addition, he expands on the official corruption and anti-Semitism that he repeatedly observed. He also shares the sad story of his father, a dissident who was eventually committed to a mental hospital for daring to criticize the Soviet system. But in the 1980s, after Brezhnev's death and a couple of short-lived successors, the Gorbachev reforms began, totally upending many details of daily life. Fortunately for Drushishkin, Gorbachev eliminated the military draft just before he became eligible. As controls over the media loosened, he was able to see Star Wars in a movie theater, and suddenly it dawned on him that he, too, could escape the evil empire. All movies are essentially escapes from reality, and sci-fi space operas even more so. But in this case, the divide between the magic on the screen and the dead gray routine of real life was simply too much to bear. The Soviet Union had always excused its sad state of poverty and dilapidation with its striving for communism. It seems unreasonable to expect things to be clean, attractive, and in good order during such a monumental transition. All Soviet citizens were born, grew up, worked, gave birth, and died under an all-encompassing implied sign, pardon our dust, work in progress. But in the last years, it had been dawning on people more and more that there was no actual work being done. There was only dust. The USSR was not decrepit and poor because it was putting all its effort into building a bright, shiny tomorrow for all the people, with limitless food, free toys for all children, vacations on Mars, and a room for every person to themselves in a separate apartment without endless lines for the toilet. It was that way because construction had long stopped. Even if the tech crew ever got people over to Mars on one of their hundreds of flying saucers that seemed to consume all resources and talent, the only thing one could imagine them doing there was sitting in on party meetings, albeit perhaps in spacesuits, and eating the same meatballs with the same cockroaches, which would surely survive the trip even better than the human travelers. And all the while, somewhere else, people really were dreaming big and having grand visions of cosmic proportions and inspiring each other to strive for the forces of light in the face of all adversity. He eventually managed to get accepted into a Chinese studies department in college, correctly figuring that becoming an expert in a foreign language would increase his chances of traveling abroad. As a result, he succeeded in leaving the USSR and later began a successful career as a Western banker. One final point we can't finish without mentioning is the jokes. Drachishkin opens each chapter with a short joke, and many of these are quite revealing about Soviet life. Here are just a few of our favorite examples. A woman is taking a bath in a communal apartment and notices a man's face watching her from behind frosted glass. What's the matter with you, she yells. Oh, please, like you've got something I've not seen before, he says. I'm just making sure you're not using my soap. A teacher in a Soviet kindergarten tells her class, Unlike in the capitalist countries, in the USSR, children have plenty to eat and nice clothes to wear. They live in large apartments, and they have lots of wonderful toys to play with. In the back row, a little boy starts to cry. 
I don't want to live here anymore, he says. I want to live in the USSR. The USSR developed a new brand of boiled sausage and decided to send it to a laboratory in America for independent testing. Three weeks later, they received the reply. There were no parasites identified in this stool sample. Yeah, everything is normal. <laughs> what a title for a book, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But everything I, is normal. I think he really hits on something important, though, because we have all these ideas of sort of what normal modern life is like, right? And, um, you know, there's all these little things we take for granted. And, um, you know, what he's pointing out in this book is, you know, all these little things, you, you don't notice them, but yet if you didn't have them, you, you'd be shocked, right? And And just... You know, things like how amazing it was to have a piece of bubble gum when he was five years old. You know, can you imagine anyone anywhere in the West, you know, even a poor person being that excited about being introduced to bubble gum? <laughs> you know? Yes, of course, some of the the experiences he, he shares with us, such as uh, uh, housing shortages and, and putting people to live in communes or basically large homes with different extended families and sometimes strangers it's it's something that we kind of most of us relate with communism but some of the other things uh, uh, people don't really understand the um, amount of scarcity scarcity that that communism uh, creates and that is for just common things that that we take for granted and and things that that we enjoy daily like like he says bubble gum and other other simple things in life that ultimately make uh, life uh, worthwhile yeah yeah or even not even worthwhile but just make life comfortable right that all these yes. little things that we don't have to worry about but yet would be constantly occupying your mind if you mm -hmm. live under that system right yeah most, most of the time i think of communism oh my god they're going to confiscate uh, confiscate what i earn or my home or my business you know and and we don't think about all the other uh things that the general population uh, has to endure and of course he he explains uh, he shares with us uh, a lot of those daily things that common people were were missing because of communism yeah yeah and i think it is important because there's so many of these you know socialists these days and communists riding in the streets who think, oh, well, if we were to introduce socialism, then the rich people would pay a little more taxes, but otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, our lives would be about the same, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, they don't mm -hmm. take into account that, okay, it's not just that you're paying more money in taxes, but that with the money you have left, you won't be able to do simple things like, you know, go to Starbucks and buy a coffee mm -hmm. uh, because they won't have any cups to put the coffee in because that will have been judged non-essential by the government or something. And, Things like yes, that. of course. And um, the other thing they they um, people fail to consider is the fact that every time I have seen uh, governments turn more socialist, they also and eventually they start leading to communism. 
And they start by restricting people as to what jobs they can get, you know, where they can live, what schools they go to, and and that just keeps getting worse and worse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is this when you have this philosophy that there's a best way to do things and someone at the top needs to decide it, you're totally dependent on the whims of their decision. Right. So someone at the top level in the Soviet Union probably decided, well, disposable paper cups are wasteful and, you know, you don't need mm -hmm. them. And the result mm -hmm. is that when people go to buy a soda, you know, there are no paper cups available. Um, all they can use are these horrible glasses that are reused by every customer and not properly cleaned. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and that's it. Well, one valuable lesson of this story is the the value of introducing um, ideas or people from other countries because in other places because they um, they open people's eyes. If people don't see anything different, they just assume that that's the way things are, and and that there is no other way. That's that's just normal. That's the name of the book, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that is important, right? Because you notice that, you know, when um, the author describes the his tastes he got of, you know, the sort of luxuries of foreign mm -hmm. life, like the bubble gum and, mm -hmm. and things like that, it tends to be introduced through what little contact with the outside they had. Right. So like mm -hmm. the piece of bubble gum was given to him by a relative from another country. And mm -hmm. you know, he learned about paper cups when he went to an Olympic event where there were foreign mm -hmm. vendors allowed in and, and things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So it does show you yeah, the importance of just looking around and seeing what's happening in other places and um, not just assuming that everybody lives roughly the same as you do. Yes. And uh, of course, we take for granted, too, that because they they become more restrictive of everything, simple things that every everyone else enjoys, like bananas or sodas or something, you know, Pepsi-Cola, uh, they are severely restricted in those places. So one, one of the things that, um, um, that the story goes into is uh, scarcity, which is, you know, it, it talks about... Um, you know the the laws of supply and demand not being an effect in socialism or 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 communism, but but they are the laws of supply and demand are they're always in play. You may try to to fool them, but but they um, you can see that that people that uh, have access to certain things they they end up being um, a lot more important, you know, and people look for them. And and so, um, you know, having someone like in the story talks about someone who works at a store, they have access to those things. So they become, um, they become more valuable. And, and so to me, it's just uh, amazing to see how, if you try to fool the laws of supply and demand, eventually you end up with a ton of corruption. And, yeah, and yeah. That's, that's what he seems to lead into almost in every case, corruption and more corruption. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, people think this sort of controlled market is some kind of impersonal machine that will Mm -hmm. output the optimized goods for everybody at every time. But every Mm -hmm. place people have tried to implement this kind of controlled market, it's been dependent on human employees at every level to implement. Yeah. And and every place that introduces Mm -hmm. an opportunity and a huge incentive for corruption. Yeah, you can see in the story that people know that certain goods are going to be in, in, in scarce and just go out and buy them or get them into their homes just to go bad on them because they probably didn't even need them. They just wanted them just in case, you know. So it really is the market at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that is an important point because that, I think, goes beyond the corruption. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. fact that when you have this sort of government randomly interfering in the market and destroying the, the feedback mechanism of supply and demand, mm-hmm. then these random shortages can balloon at any time because if people just start to worry mm-hmm. slightly that some particular good won't be available, that means they have to go out and buy as much of it as they can to yeah. operation for that date. And, and we actually got a little bit of a taste of that in the U.S. recently when at the start of this uh, lockdown, right, remember in March mm-hmm. or April, this mm-hmm. rumor started flying around that there was a toilet paper shortage coming, yes. which, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous, of course, because coronavirus mm-hmm. doesn't affect that end of the mm-hmm. body. But um, <laughs> so because of this rumor, there was this rush on toilet paper, everyone went out and hoarded toilet paper, which meant that if you didn't have toilet paper, it became nearly impossible to find for a while. Though mm-hmm. luckily in the US, of course, we still have market mechanisms and people quickly, mm-hmm. you know, manufactured more toilet paper and <laughs> it reappeared in stores and we managed to get ourselves out of that through the mechanism of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. But just imagine yeah. that happening every day for nearly every good you can think of. Yeah, it it just seems to me like um, that's why all those systems have always failed, uh, 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 have never been effective because it, it seems like trying to mess with the uh, market is like trying to mess with time, you know. It's just going to do what it needs, what it's going to do. And eventually it'll catch up with you. And, and I see, you know, a lot of corruption coming out of, out of, um, uh, this types of, of ideas where they start to limit people or coerce people or try to, um, uh, control people or the market. And he just, it's going to lead into corruption most of the time. Um, when every time we uh, try to cir- circumvent the laws of supply and demand, and um, one of the things that I found interesting was the um, part where you know the uh, some of the organizations we have in in open societies like the U.S. Uh, the, the Boy Scouts uh, versus the Young Pioneers. You know how. You know, eventually they start figuring it out that that uh, they're just doing things um, to get through something. You know, not because they believe in anything anymore, but just, they're just going through the motions. You know, to to get to the next phase of something. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is interesting. You know, for yeah. They realize that something's fundamentally wrong with the way they're living, but yet, you know, they're required to consistently, uh, you know, praise the system and insist mm-hmm. that everything's going great. Otherwise, they'll get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so the um one of one of the the uh main things that those uh, uh governments that try to control people is that as soon as they they don't uh, behave the way they want them to behave. They either put you in jail or guess what's the other option for you all the time? Mental institution. You might have a mental problem <laughs> and yeah. you end up in a mental institution. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the kind of the saddest part of that book was the, the story of the author's father. Right? Yes. Where, um, you know, he, he just couldn't uh, cope with the system. Yeah, and they ended up institutionalizing him, and um, he, of course, developed a severe alcohol problem as well as a result of all that, and um, mm -hmm. you know, died young. Mm -hmm. How how um, much influence do you think the Voice of America was in all those countries? Do you think many people actually heard about it or 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 listened to it? How could they? I mean, I it, it's hard for me to imagine how they were listening to those shows, uh, um, was it easy to um, get on the radio or how was how were they able to listen to the Voice of America? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's funny. There was actually some discussion of that in the book. I don't think I uh, included too much of that aspect in our summary. But in, in a sense, it was easier with mid-20th century radio technology, right, where you sort of broadcast yeah. radio waves in the air, anyone can receive them, right? Mm -hmm. So... So it was relatively easy if you had radio equipment, even if it was set to the frequency of, you know, the government broadcast, you could, you know, turn the dials or whatever and, and catch the foreign broadcasts. And that was an important way that they got foreign information in. And you know, hmm. it's interesting because that, that gives a lot of sort of that big picture information that, you know, authors like, uh, like this one use to learn about the outside world. Yeah. But even then, I think that information, you know, lacks something you know, in comparison to just being able to see the little things, you know, like bubble gum yes. and paper cups yeah. and, and stuff. You can, I, you, you I can taste many, that. Right. I doubt you, there are many broadcasts about those things, but yet yeah. I think those are critical things that sort of open the eyes of this author to, to what's going on. Yeah, you can touch it and you can see it and you can taste it and yeah. feel it. <laughs> um, so on the... the, the uh, timing of this, Gorbachev seemed to play a big role there with these reforms, and I was surprised uh, in this story to learn that Gorbachev eliminated the military draft. Uh, that that was news to me. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know too much about that. I think, um, you know, pr probably a lot of it was that by that point, um, the Afghanistan war was an obvious failure. I uh, won't comment any on our Afghanistan war, but... Um, <laughs> By then, the, the Soviets realized they weren't accomplishing anything there anyway. And I think that was probably a bigger factor than Gorbachev's personal motivation for reform. Um, which, as we've discussed in other episodes, there is mixed opinions on, you know, whether Gorbachev was truly this noble reformer or whether he was just another yes. communist bureaucrat with a good PR department. Yes. Uh, uh, regarding the um, the... Uh, the lapidation of the state in in the disrepair of things uh, with uh, uh, inefficient governments and, and economic systems. Um, 
you know, it's it's really interesting that that they they tend to always whoever's in power, whoever they tend to always claim that um, it's just feeling this way because we're in a transition here. Yeah, yeah, and people buy it. And people buy it that all this pain is because of the transition. It's like taking your medicine now. It's it's gonna feel awful, but that's you'll be better down the road, and it never gets any better. And I wonder why people keep believing those things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting the discussion about how you know the, this author's eyes were opened by watching Star Wars. That you uh-huh. know, he saw, you know, these were people who really had a vision for the future. And, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's uh, it just uh, opened up his eyes to the fact that his people really had sort of no hope for any future like that. And you know, and I liked his comment that even if they did go into space, they would be too busy. Uh, having communist uh, propaganda meetings at the space station to actually do yeah. exploration. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Um, uh, so, I I think um, I think once people kind of open their eyes and see that, hey, wait a minute, I see this other when they when they're able to compare things, that's when they can open their eyes. It's very difficult to open your eyes when you have nothing else to compare with, you know. And once they start comparing things, they go like, hey, wait, wait a minute. You know, uh, I'm thinking small here. All these people are thinking big. And and I need to, you know, get with a program. I could be doing something like that, too. And they haven't been. Um, and, and I think uh, some sort of a. Uh, exposure to uh, other things, new things, and comparisons and new ideas is such an important uh, factor in improving our lives. Don't you think so? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, and I mean, even like, you know, in this case, you know, it was, you know, the really the author's exposure to these little things from the outside world that really let him see that, uh, you know, wait a minute, there, there's another way to do things. I don't have to just accept, my, yeah. you know, communist fate here. Yes, yes. Um, so uh, the bottom line is that I find a consistent thread here where uh, many of these people, whether they're in some uh, camp imprisoned or just living daily lives, but un, um, unable to escape their situation, they somehow use humor to to escape those conditions and to share with the rest of the public um, their feelings. And it's such a wonderful thing to be able to uh, have people you know, have that instinct for humor, and people tend to to uh, accept humor, even even if you have some weird ideology, because usually humor has so much truth in th- in it that you you can't avoid but to uh, accept it or or laugh about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought it it was nice that uh, you know this guy managed to remain you know this managed to remain positive and. and 
despite the fact that, you know, what he was talking about seems kind of insane to us as, as a way to live, <laughs> but he was still but able to laugh at he, it. Yeah, but based on many of the other stories we have shared, and with so much pain in the people that, that put those, you know, that wrote the stories or the books the, or the life of those people, and so many of them uh, use humor to escape or to send uh, uh, send uh, signals or messages to the population. Yeah. And, and he has worked. So I, I am very impressed with the power of humor. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I mean, I think that's that's one reason why, you know, today in the U.S. we're having all these problems with this new wave of censorship where, you know, someone's life has to be destroyed if they tell an inappropriate joke or if they've been caught telling one 20 years ago um, because the power of humor that humor does have to shine light on some crazy political ideologies. Absolutely. So, Eric, when someone tells you that everything is normal... Don't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) There's probably something different out there that you should at least compare or try. As usual, there's plenty more to learn from Drachishkin's memoir, besides the tiny bits we've excerpted here. Be sure to follow the link in the show notes at storiesofcommunism.com, or look up his book, Everything is Normal, yourself, and you can read more of the sad but ironic truths about life under communist rule. And this has been your story of communism for today.